wanted Jumanji. Oh God, I wish. That, <laughs> that sounded like Jumanji to me. And I'm like, no, actually, I was trying to I was trying to do um, <laughs> what's that that song that plays in um, it's that it's the Benihana band, Misirlu. You know, I don't know what you're talking about. It's the one that goes. Sure, Drew. Hold on, this one. I forgot to rebring back. My... Oh. Exactly. Exactly. I remember because everyone remembers like, oh, it's in the beginning of, of Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, but it's still really fucking good. Hi. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Strange Little Worlds, the bi-weekly podcast telling you true stories of crime and paranormal experiences in the little worlds you may call home. I'm Danny. And I'm Drew. And come take a walk with us as we rejoin Manhattan. And by the way, everybody, it's our 10th episode. Episode 10. That's a big deal for us because we didn't even think this was going to go past episode one. Really? And we have plenty of listeners and we didn't think we'd have any. <laughs> exactly. We were just like, we just expected relatives, significant others, <laughs> five friends, and then that was it. But then Max. when she told me last time, she was like, Oh, we got like 143 listeners. I was like, awesome. That's that's like 135 more than I thought we'd have. Quite so, literally. Wonderful. And this time for our 10th episode, we have a very special episode. Drew, disclaimer alert, has given me some lines to say when he points to me. She was so excited. I hope I get them right. I hope I remember them. I should probably write it down. No, no, but, don't worry. Okay. I, 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 I'll... <laughs> You'll feed I, I, me the line? They, 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 line? Not, not as much feed your line. I'm fa- I'm fairly certain you can get them. It's literally two lines, exactly six words completely. Like, I'm, you know, it's very simple. I just, I can't say this in the way that I need. A young lady can say yeah, it. He I, needs a lady exactly. voice. Exactly. So I can't do that. And I, being the voice actor, of course, will happily oblige. See, I shouldn't have asked her. I should have like, asked my girlfriend just recorded it. But, you know. <laughs> But, you know, know, hindsight. Exactly. 2020. (laughs) And as a special bonus, since this is our 10th episode and because Manhattan, like I said in my last one, is so difficult to choose from, we will be giving you two stories each for this one. Correction, not two. One. One story. I'm sorry. I'm wrong. Well, mine is like two in one. Yeah. Because they're both connected. Yeah. Hers is like two in one. Me, I will have one and an extra story, which was too good to pass up, and I couldn't do as a mini episode. And since this was around the 10, I was like, it's a perfect way to kind of thank you all and take a final bow and whatnot. Um, funny enough, both my stories actually involve the theater, oh. which you can't. Uh, you cannot discuss Manhattan without discussing theater. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Literally. Broadway, right near Times Square with all the weird yes. Times Square. Times Square uh, all those costumers. people, you mean like, ex-convicts in costumes? <laughs> okay, all I know is, I just want to say this, I the, the Elmos freaked me out. Okay? Yeah, it is yeah. So, and, and it's horrible because I read this comic, and I bring this up, much to the annoyance of my girlfriend, every time we're passing Times Square, because it just, it sticks. There was a comic where, in that comic, they explained that vampires are the actual... Elmo um, impersonators, impersonators oh. in the comic. 
So, you know, it's it's Deadpool comics, so it's it kind of makes comics, sense. Yeah. But for me, and I and this is around the time I'm also reading Max Brooks's uh World War Z. Lovely. Yeah, so both that combined. And I just thought, I'm sorry, but one of the scariest things would be a treaded, torn up, blood-soaked Elmo a cookie monster chasing after you. I was like, no, that is where that is where childhoods die. <laughs> Just nightmares. I draw the line. I draw the line. I like, I see, they're so weird. <laughs> and then on top of it, if, if it's not them, then the other ones, the ones who are just the Avengers, are super aggressive trying to get you to take photos. Yes. And it's like, crap out of you, it's like, Hulk, if you do that, I will go full. I was like, I'll, <laughs> I will Hulk on you. Exactly. I was like, <laughs> I'll do, I'll, I'll take a photo and then wham, <laughs> I will punch you like Thor during you know, Avengers. But that's neither here nor thou. But the point being is my story is in Broadway. Nice. Both of them. Theater. And of course, I have a gangster. Because of course, you can't talk about Manhattan without talking about gangsters. Organized crime. <laughs> yeah. Now, you said uh, initially, and maybe I didn't understand, so your story and technically stories are both connected in a way. Well, it's literally, it's one just really long story because it's the, this gangster mm-hmm. had... A hand in an important event. Okay. Oh, I see what you mean. I'm trying to be so cryptic about it. I see what you mean. So it's it's literally, it is another story, but it's actually more a story within. Within a story. Yeah. yeah. It's it's like a. It's a a storyception. It's almost, if it's the bulletin board, it would be, this is a major pin. This is a red pin. Yes. In the the string. It's like Inception, but with stories. Yeah. Okay, good. (laughs) We don't have any tops, so you got to let me know if this is a dream. So, the, okay, I'll start with mine, then we'll do yours, and then we'll finish, and then graduate, we made it to 10, let's get to Yay! 20. So, thank you again, everybody. I really, honestly, on my end, I thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. This has been so much fun. Literally. And you know how you can support us without spending any money on us is by literally rating us and leaving us reviews and Share us with your friends. There's a share button on a lot of our episodes. Just share it on your social media. It would be so helpful Or to people us. who I've asked like on, on Facebook, can you please see the request and say, and say liked? <laughs> please like us. <laughs> like us. I mean, You again, can also leave us a review on Facebook too. It doesn't yeah. have to be just on iTunes. It could yeah. be on Facebook, you know. You know, letting us know we're doing a job. I mean, again more viewers we get that's clearly kind of a, hey you're doing good but <laughs> we'd love you. to get more listeners we would we always we would. can get more but or you could always get less either way point please being, not less please thank not you less. so <laughs> thank you here we go uh so my story begins at the new amsterdam theater which uh right now is currently showing aladdin which ah, i have seen yay. and i will tell you nice worth it totally amazing i'm sure it's one of my favorite disney movies worth it but there's been a lot of shows over the years there. And this is the New Amsterdam Theater, which is between, of course, 7th and 8th Avenue. Sorry. Yes. Speaking of Aladdin, did you know that Robin Williams has in his will a clause that no one can use his voice or likeness for the next, like, 25 years after his death? I did not know that. I found that out, like, a few weeks ago, actually. This and I'm like, oh, that makes sense. That, that, that makes sense. Uh, well, okay. Well. I feel bad, but... Anyway, back to your story. Thank you. Very nice. So... <laughs> The New York Sam Theater, funny enough, has actually been entertaining Broadway audiences since its doors opened in 1903. Wow. Yeah. So it's bound to be spooky. Indeed. <laughs> so where we originally start is actually we are going to go into the bit of the origins of Broadway. We're going to meet 
the person who became, let's just say, a permanent star mm. in the new Amsterdam theater, even after death. Mm-hmm. And we're going to go on to how she has become, and I kid you not, one of the most well-known spirits in Broadway history. Nice. Which is hard to say because let me tell you, I had multiple stories about spirits in Broadway. Like, let me tell you, the show goes on even in death. So there's a lot of ghost activity in all these theaters. So fair warning, if someone, you feel like someone's tapping your shoulder, you don't see anybody, I I wouldn't worry too much. (laughs) So our character... We know her as Olive Thomas, but she wasn't always that way. But where we're originally starting is the New Amsterdam Theater, right? Mm-hmm. We're in 1903. You have, it was originally only two theaters, a series of offices, a number of comfortable lounges, and a lobby, which had murals that remembered the New York that was. So New Amsterdam, kind of old mm-hmm. school. You know, mm-hmm. So that's the theater. Our character, his name is Olive Duffy. Mm-hmm. She was born in Charleroi, PA, in 1894. Mm-hmm. So nice girl. When her dad, her father, obviously dad, father, <laughs> dies in a, a steel worker accident. Oh. A 15-year-old Olive leaves school and gets a job to help support her family. Okay. In 1911, she's working a department job in Pittsburgh and is married to a man named Thomas for about two years. Okay. Marriage ends. She Does she keep her married name? Because Olive Thomas has a nice kind of old school ring to it, I guess. Yeah. Moved to New York where she wins a contest for the most beautiful girl in New York City. Which, not bad. Yeah. Coming from a little town in PA. Yeah. And coming from Pittsburgh. Pretty good. Good for her. with that, Olive begins a modeling career. Nice. And this takes a huge turn for the better when she auditions for Flo Siegfeld. The New Amsterdam Theater for a role in his popular show, The Ziegfeld Follies. Now, Florence, aka Flo Ziegfeld, is a popular person within media and whatnot. He has been producing at this time an American version of the Parisian Follies Vigier. I'm sure I said that wrong. I'm sorry, mom. <laughs> Since 1907. And he moves this show to New Amsterdam in June 1913. So I'm just moving down the timeline here. Okay. So the show itself is a combination of songs sung by famous singers, celebrated vaudeville comedians, because we're still at the point where there is still vaudeville. Okay. But the real highlight, of course, is the Follies, who are beautiful women dancing and revealing costumes. Of course. Yeah. Can't say no to that. Exactly. (laughs) So during the process, Flo, who is a very well-known womanizer, (laughs) <laughs> is smitten with Olive's beauty, and naturally, you're hired. Yeah, of course you are. You're hired. So Come in here, doll. <laughs> oh, God, I can't. So Olive loves dancing in the Follies, and her outfit is essentially a green beaded dress with a matching feathered headband and a sash that has her name on it. Okay. She is also a very big flirt. So naturally, of course. her and Flo are soon locked into an affair. <laughs> So I'm a, surprised. I know, right? <laughs> Scandalous affairs in theater. In theater? Who knew? With flirts? Oh, no. So in addition to the show, Olive would also perform in the theater's more adult show on the theater's rooftop, which was called The Midnight Frolic. Ooh. So this is, imagine a garden atmosphere on a glass dance floor, which enabled the male audiences to look up. Ah. 
Ah, a lady's lovely. Skirts. The female dancers performed on stage nude, uh-huh. occasionally covered with balloons that their male audience would pop with their cigars. <laughs> Sounds like a great show. <laughs> so in her time there, Olive became very popular because, again, I'll, I'll we'll have a photo or two up. Gorgeous. And she's a flirt. She's No, she was stunning. There were even... There's even portraits of her. Oh, wow. Yeah. So she attracted a lot of attention besides Flo. Okay. So one man whose name was Alberto Vargas was able to convince her to let him paint a portrait of her, which he titled Memories of Olive, where she was depicted nude from about the waist up holding a rose. I've seen it. It's actually gorgeous. Oh, wow. Okay. Another man who was also a frequent patron of the Midnight Frolic, his name was Jack Pickford. Mm -hmm. He is the younger brother of famous silent movie star, Mary Pickford. Oh, wow. Indeed. So he likes what he sees in Olive. He pursues dances with her for over eight months before they elope in 1916. It's a bit of a troubled match because Jack is also a womanizer. Mm -hmm. And both of them become the subject of consistent Hollywood gossip due to their hard drinking and consistent partying. Wow. Yeah. So you can already tell this isn't going to go well. This is, yeah. So seeking opportunity outside of the theater, Olive signs a film contract. And she would go on to star in over 20 silent films. Wow. Mm -hmm. So she transitioned really well. Wow. In 1920, she was the title character in The Flapper, which was the first time this term, which of course, as we know, means a fashionable young woman intent on enjoying herself and flouting conventional standards of behavior was used. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Google definitions. Hey, (laughs) you're good for something. Indeed. So around this year, 1920, the couple, that's Jack and all, decide to take a second honeymoon. Maybe it's to rest from the 24-7 lifestyle of Hollywood or to escape the problems that are bubbling under the surface. For instance, Jack was quietly discharged from the Navy in uh, 1918 during World War I due to accusations of bribery and helping to arrange prostitution for various officers while on duty. (sighs) That'll do it. That'll that'll do it, yeah. (laughs) At least he was quietly discharged. Yeah, well, I think because the fact that he was a celebrity. Somebody, yeah. That kind of just swept it under the rug. Yeah. It's not like, you know, when Elvis signs up for, you know. The uh, the army, yeah. Yeah, signs up for the army. Or, you know, it it always depends on the celebrity. I mean, remember you had that. He was, or then Muhammad Ali, didn't he deny Vietnam? Yeah, he, yeah, yeah and he, he was like jailed or whatever, yeah, but exactly. he made a so, statement, yeah. He was, so it always depends on the celebrity and the time. I think also one of the princes from the UK, he served in yeah. the military, but I'm pretty sure they didn't put him nope. in combat. Nope. <laughs> so despite this vacation, of course, Jack and I'll party hard, and one night they return like to their- Like Andrew W.K.? <laughs> He never responded to our, t- our No, our he didn't. I'm very upset. Calm down. <laughs> Andrew, we still respect that you still party hard, buddy. He would have loved these guys. That's probably why he so didn't respond to us. They returned to their hotel Ritz, mm-hmm. drunk. Jack passes right out. But Olive is restless. And she's looking for someone to put her to sleep. Now she sees a blue bottle that was her husband's, thinking, hey, it's more booze. It'll help me sleep. She downs it. <gasps> But she screams, it's waking gone. Jack awake, 
as the liquid burns her throat. <gasps> it's lie. As it went down. Oh, no. Nope. No, it's not lie. It's worse. <gasps> what she thought was booze was actually topical mercury bichloride, <gasps> which Jack had been using to treat his chronic syphilis. Oh, my God. Attempts to induce vomiting were unsuccessful when Olive was then taken to the Newelli Hospital. She oh, experienced no. fits of consciousness where she both apologizes to her husband for her error and also asks for her mother as the toxic fluid she ingested shut down her kidneys and she would eventually die from it. Oh, no. So Jack takes her body back to the U.S., where her crowded funeral services, because she'd gained quite a, a celebrity, yeah. not just in theater, but also in film, yeah, was conducted at the St. Thomas Episcopal Church, and she was buried in the Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx in September 1920. Wow. Now, her death, along with other untimely deaths and scandals a year or two after, resulted in Hollywood studios instating mortality clauses in their actors' contracts. Okay. That, that makes sense. Yeah. Indeed. So that is the untimely death of Olive Thomas. Since her death, almost 100 years ago, mm-hmm. to this day, mm-hmm. well, it's to this day, but almost 100 years, next year will be 100. At the New Amsterdam Theater, they have had numerous sightings, events, and experiences that strongly imply that Olive Thomas's show goes on. Wow. According to Tom Ogden in his book, Haunted Theaters, Olive's ghost has appeared partly faded backstage and in the lounges of the New Amsterdam Theater wearing her old Ziegfeld Follies outfit. Wow. A workman in 1952 saw her twice, remembering the name Olive written on her sash. Yeah. And both times she disappeared right in front of him, (gasps) holding a large blue bottle in her hands. Oh, no. And the man recognized her because when he was younger, he used to work in the theater when she was one of the followers. <gasps> Spooky. So going forward, the theater falls in serious disrepair. Mm-hmm. And, but eventually, in 1979, it's declared a New York City landmark. Mm-hmm. And in 1993, Disney buys the building. And they spend $35 million restoring it. Which is great because, again, history should be preserved. Yeah. You know, a long-standing theater like that. I mean, in 1993, it had been open for almost yeah, it had been open for 90 years. Yeah, that's amazing. You know? Isn't the Waldorf Astoria also considered a, a landmark now Indeed. too? Yeah, yeah. So now during that time, the chief of restoration and one of the primary people responsible for it, Dana Amendola, started receiving reports from the workmen that they had encountered all of. Now, the night watchman claimed to have seen a beautiful young woman on the main stage and in the dressing rooms. One said that he had captured her image in his flashlight, and in quote, the beads from her Follies dress, headpiece and sash, sparkled in the glare. Wow. And she was carrying a big blue Blue bottle. Mm -hmm. (gasps) He called out to her, Miss, stop. Who are you? You shouldn't be here. She smiled then turned, floated across the stage, and exited by walking through a solid wall where would have been 41st Street. Oh, darling, I'm a ghost. You can't tell me what to do. Okay. So... Wow. Right. So even in death, Olive remains quite the flirt as male witnesses frequently reported that she would whisper... Hey, fella. And bat her eyes or call out... Hey, how are you doing? 
before vanishing. Thank you, Danny. You're welcome. They also reported that items, of course, would be randomly moved without explanation, that she has also been seen on the Amsterdam's rooftop, remembering her old time performing in the Midnight Frolic and its old glass dance floor. Oh, wow. You just can't keep a good time down. (laughs) She frequently appears at night when audiences have left. And it's funny because she has gained such a fan base because of movies that were made, her movies, Mm -hmm. which are still watched. There was actually a show, apparently, about the Midnight Frolic. Oh. So, and she's more does, she has a lot of fans. And some of them will actually try hiding in the theater after hours to see if they can get us out of it. Because of that, the New Amsterdam does an extra special sweep of the whole theater (laughs) to catch anybody who's trying to. To get a glimpse of her spirit. Yep. So you can't even hide out if you want to. Well, that's to. the thing. She, she can be a flirt and everything, but she's also been known to be very volatile. Oh. So she's been known to make the sets shake and once calls all the lights to blow out in the upper floor offices. She tends to appear and do more things when changes are being made to the theater. Aha. Uh-huh. Again, ghosts don't like change, even in death. Even in death. So the cast and crew are aware of her presence, and they do whatever they can to keep her supernatural mischief to a minimum. There are two portraits of all of that hang in the theater that are visible only to those who work there. Mm-hmm. So possibly to this day, I believe that they still do this. Actors that perform in the various Disney productions will acknowledge her presence as they pass these two pictures. They stop and they say, good night, Olive, or they'll say, welcome home. They've also been known to blow kisses at the portrait. Aww. So this reminded me, funny enough, of another situation. I, I had told you about it when I first found this episode it's a well-known haunting that actually happens in Disney World okay. involving the Pirates of the Caribbean. Now, back in the day when the Pirates of the Caribbean was being built, there was an incident in mm-hmm. which a worker whose name, I believe, was George, I don't mm-hmm. remember his last name, unfortunately, died uh, while they were constructing it. Mm-hmm. And it's believed that his spirit still remains in the ride, oh. haunting it uh, in a certain way. So every... M- Every day when they open, they have to speak into Michael and said and say, good morning, George, and say good night. If they don't, the ride will be played with technical delays. <gasps> That's amazing. Mm-hmm. So then I wonder if they experienced any like shakiness or weird stuff when they yeah. changed it because the it's I went there recently and right. they have like Captain Jack Sparrow in there I feel now. Like, yeah, they probably did. I mean, again, oh, there's probably man. were issues. If you're you know. in Florida and you work in the rides, please tell us. Please, please tell so, us. So <laughs> now, upon my research, I actually found two instances where there were specific occurrences or even a sighting by a people, other people. So in 2016, Playbill, mm-hmm. an article about Olive and her hauntings, reported a story where a group of Disney staffers were sitting in an office discussing the Oscar-winning film The Artist, which, as you know, was set in the silent film era. Mm-hmm. So they were discussing how many Folly girls became film stars. And of course, Olive was mentioned. Mm-hmm. But somebody said the real star of the silent era was Mary Pickford, who we know, <gasps> Olive's sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. And I quote, this is quoted from Diane Amendola, or no, Dana Amendola. I'm sorry, Miss Amendola. Now, maybe Olive got a little upset about that because when someone said, I wonder what Olive Thomas would think of the artist, 
a stack of 13 or 14 DVDs on the table next to them flew into the air and crashed across the room. They all sat, sat in stunned silence. That stack had been there for a long time and there was no obvious way they could have fallen, let alone flew across the room. They didn't fall straight down as C-Days would have done. They went flying about three feet across the room and hit a wall. As if someone slapped them. <gasps> this was witnessed by several people. They didn't even make the connection all of right away. But when they told me about it, I did. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. what she thinks of her. <laughs> Pretty much. So although Olive has been known, as you know, to typically appear after the show's over, she has been known to make appearances before the show. Ushers and overnight security people report feeling a touch on the back, like someone sneaking up on them and playing a practical joke. But of course, when they turn around, no one is there. Mm -hmm. Now, we referenced Aladdin in the beginning, and of course, that wasn't a coincidence. Shortly after the opening of Aladdin in 2014, an audience member came up to one of the ushers during a performance and said, could I have a booster seat for my child? Mm -hmm. And again, according to Miss Amendola, we don't like to interrupt a show, so we waited until the intermission and came to her with a booster. But we found she already had one. When we asked where she had gotten it, she said a lady at the back of the theater had gestured to where they were. Now, we don't have a woman at the back of the house who does that in the middle of a show. We checked and none of the staff had done it. So you can take that how you <gasps> like, but it was kind of freaky. Hey, so, anyone can enjoy the show. Ma'am, right here. Right. Get you, so get you kid a booster story, seat. As I said, promoted through magazine stories, articles, even the 2015 stage musical, The Ziegfeld's Midnight Frolic, which considering what I've learned, that must be must have been some show. <laughs> she has quite a following. Nearly, again, like I said, nearly a century after death, Olive Thomas is considered to be one of the best known Ziegfeld girls and is the subject of films, books, and at least half a dozen websites. Or, oh. as Miss Mendela put it, that would really delight Olive and annoy the other Ziegfeld girls, I'm sure. <laughs> so that's my story. A special thank you to Virginia Lampkin at the seatghosts.blogspot.com and, of course, playbill.com. And thank you to Miss Mendela for all of your quotes regarding the matter for their research. So, Olive Thomas, everybody. I love it. I love her. I love that she's still there. I love that she's the show is still going on for her. I mean, that could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending even on it. Once a diva, always a diva. Always a diva, death. even in death. I love it. Yeah, but it's when you see her photo, she was really pretty. Like it's it's not surprising. That her, she had, yeah. That she had the career trajectory. And you can only imagine what would have happened and she lived. I mean, that's the crazy thing. It was an accident. Yeah. You know, that's the crazy thing. It was a complete accident. Like, she I don't just looking know for some sleep. how much longer Jack lived, mm -hmm. you know, because again, unfortunately, I didn't really look into it because he's, he was only. He's not the main character of the story. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, like, I just heard that and I was like, oh, wow, it was just She's so crazy because I've been the to that best. theater. I've seen, I saw Aladdin there. I saw Mary Poppins there, I think. And it's a great theater. And Did you see Olive? No. Nope. That's the important part, Drew. Excuse me. God. Excuse me. I can't know about everything. <laughs> Although, funny enough, I did mention, I did find her in some of my earlier research. So I, I just didn't really put two and two together. Right. 
Like yeah. you heard, like, oh, there's a spirit. Well, I, I, had, I, I had done the research, but it was more for me about the really cool story. I, I hadn't really put two and two together that I had actually been at that theater. Oh, so okay. It's one of those, it's like where you actually had been at yeah. the site. It's like when you did the main episode about Wall Street. Like when I go to work, I'm... I'm like on lunch break. If I'm not freezing, I might actually <laughs> yeah, try go to see, see if I can find the chunks of that building that were yes. missing from that attack. Yes. Check that out. Check out our mini episodes if you want to know what I'm talking about. Indeed. Indeed. So that's my story, Olive Thomas. So thank you, Drew. Thank you. I hope our listeners enjoyed that because I certainly did. Definitely some chills. Any, did, was I, I was about to say. Definite chills. I'm trying to remember. Like, I feel like I'm trying to figure out what moment was pretty i feel like for you know what i think it was the one like the moment you got goosebumps was the one where the guy said you can't be here and she yes, just smiled she and just like, smiled and it's like i'm just gonna go through this wall so Mwah. like what what what, what 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 was the goosebump like climax there was it that or was it the uh that and also i had a goosebumps show up on that part and mm. then when the lady was looking for the booster seat and the woman was yeah pointed it out to her and i'm like Yep. Yeah, can you only imagine? Olive. Yep, true story. All right, so that's that's my story. So, Danny. Your one story. My one story. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll, yeah, you know, we'll get there. So, your turn. My turn. Well, since I'm having a two-in-one kind of thing, we'll end with your story. Mm-hmm. So, I'm going to talk about gangsters. And this guy actually wasn't officially a gangster. So, kind of a... Uh, up and comer. He no, he was like a legit businessman with uh, connections in the oh, gangster world. So I see. Yeah. So okay. So I'm gonna cool talk about with the gang, but not going to prison with them. I guess. Yes. I'm gonna talk about the murder of Arnold Rothstein. Okay. So no Manhattan story would be complete without a gangster in it. It's true. That's why we're gonna talk about. Mr. Arnold Rothstein. Mr. Mm. Arnold Rothstein was born on January 17th, 1882. Okay. He was known as the brain, the fixer, or the big bankroll. Okay. Love it. Arnold may have done more to corrupt sports and inversely encouraged reforms than any other single person in the early decades of the 20th century. Holy shit. The Prohibition, which we've mentioned before, which took effect on January 16, 1920, may have done more to boost organized crime. The ban on the manufacture and sale of drinking alcohol did nothing to dry up the demand for whiskey and wine. Mm -hmm. Some observers speculated that banning alcoholic beverages made them more appealing to those who might otherwise not have indulged. I see. Historians speculate that Jews comprised half of the nation's leading bootleggers Mm -hmm. and that Jewish gangsters like Mayor Lansky and Bugsy Siegel dominated organized crime in certain cities. Of course, with the largest Jewish population, New York produced the largest number of Jewish gangsters. Just goes with the territory. Right. The kingpin of the New York Jewish underworld was not a street tough gangster, but a refined gambler, Mr. Arnold Rothstein. According to historian Robert Rockaway, Rothstein is recognized as the pioneer big businessman of organized crime in the United States. Historian Leo Katcher described Arnold as the J.P. Morgan of the underworld, its banker and master of strategy. 
Meyer Lansky, known as the mob's accountant, who was one of the most important figures in the development of organized crime in New York, nationwide and worldwide in the 20th century, and a man of intelligence himself, has been quoted as saying, Rothstein had the most remarkable brain. He understood business instinctively, and I'm sure that if he had been a legitimate financier, he would have been just as rich as he became with his gambling and other rackets he ran. Oh, wow. Arnold Rothstein had a hunger for gambling, especially casino games, cards, and horse racing. But he also used an extensive network of advisors to limit the uncertainty of the results of his wagers. Okay. So, fixed games. Nice. (laughs) He was accused of engineering outcomes of many horse races, for example. Okay. And he reportedly operated an illegal casino in Manhattan. The prohibition helped Arnold reach new heights of power and income. Okay. He was quicker than some of his mobster colleagues to see the huge profits that could come from the illegal sales of banned alcohol. I see. Notably, although Arnold was often considered a professional, even corporate member of the mob, he was also not afraid to use his connections with violent New York City street gangs to further his business interests. Arnold was a major player in the growing East Coast mob syndicates before and during the Prohibition. Arnold Rothstein was born with a business pedigree. His father was a wealthy businessman, Abraham Rothstein, who was dubbed by New York Governor Al Smith as Abe the Just. He was a pious man with a reputation for philanthropy and honesty. And Abraham Rothstein served as chairman of the board of New York's Beth Israel Hospital. Mm. His older son became a rabbi, but his younger son Arnold was interested in business. Not his father's type, though. Mm -hmm. In his teens, Arnold was already involved in gambling and loan sharking, and by the 1920s had cultivated the friendship of politicians and businessmen, as well as crime lords. Great. He became the paramount fixer which is someone who acted as go-between in business contracts with the city. He was paramount in the quashing of arrests, in extra-legal permissions to operate speakeasies and other criminal enterprises, and in other bargainings that paid off politicians and the police. He was also a banker for bootlegging and other illegal enterprises. Sounds like a real New Yorker. He's, he is the quintessential New Yorker. Arnold was independent, though. He operated without a continuing gang of his own. He worked for working for all ethnic gangsters, Jewish, Italian, Irish, and he eventually began hiring them also indiscriminately. Didn't matter where they were from, who they were. All right, you want to work for me? All right. Right. He was well-tailored and well-mannered with a quiet look of respectability, contrasting to the garishness of other mobsters like Al Capone. Right which would prove to be the model for later heads of organized crime, the I'm a businessman look. After flunking out of school because he spent time and money gambling, Arnold figured out that, quote, if anyone was going to make money out of gambling, he had better be on the right side of the fence. I was on the wrong end of the game. In his late 20s, Arnold opened a gambling parlor. By 1912, when he was 30, Arnold was a millionaire from the profits of his gambling parlors and racetracks that he owned. So as historian Robert Rockaway observed, quote, 
With gambling as his base, Rothstein had access to the cash and political protection needed to make big deals in many other spheres, notably bootlegging. Of course. He was among the first to purchase fine liquor in England, smuggle Uh, it to America uh, by the boatload. By the boatload. And distribute it to the speakeasies and blind pigs, which were the illicit establishments that sold alcoholic beverages that replaced the legal taverns during the Prohibition era. And the term speakeasies now is uh, usually used as like a retro style bar. It's not what it used to mean. Of course. Arnold did not stay in liquor smuggling for long, though, because the business was mm, too decentralized for him to control and the profit margins were way too small. Instead, he turned his experience as an importer to narcotics smuggling, a far more lucrative and less competitive business. Dear God. (laughs) Dear God. By 1926, Arnold Rothstein was the financial overlord of the American narcotics trade. Arnold had an eye for talent. His henchmen during the 1920s included celebrity thugs such as Jack Diamond, a.k.a. Legs, Charles Luciano, a.k.a. Lucky, Lucky. Dutch Schultz, and Frank Costello. Oh, wow. Charles Luciano, Lucky, worshipped Arnold. Quote, he taught me how to dress, how to use knives and forks and things like that at the dinner table, about holding a door open for a girl. If Arnold had lived a little longer... He could have made me pretty elegant. (laughs) Well, considering how lucky he ended out, I don't know how much longer he would have lasted either. Right? Yeah. So Arnold Rothstein was actually the prototype for F. Scott Fitzgerald character Meyer Wolfsheim in The Great Gatsby. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. I mean, you know, sounds like a really questionable person, but like, you know. I mean, what a compliment to be kind of immortalized in... Right? In literature. And also, uh, Damon uh, Runyon modeled yeah. the character Nathan Detroit in Guys and Dolls after no Arnold Rothstein. No That's one of my favorite Broadway shows. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Oh, nice. Learn something new today. Indeed. So, Arnold Rothstein literally captured the public imagination. Like, right. there was nothing that was out of control, basically, for him. But... Nothing he accomplished in his illicit adventures compares to his suspected engineering of the Chicago Black Sox baseball scandal. Oh, man. Now we're going to go inside the story of the story. Now I understand what you were saying. (laughs) Story within the story. (laughs) Now, this one doesn't take place in Manhattan because it takes place... In several different places. Right. So the Black Sox scandal. Everyone's heard of the Black Sox scandal, but I feel like a lot of people forget what exactly it was. Right. Everyone pretty much just focuses on, like, this is Pete Ross, right? This is that. Or am I thinking of the wrong scandal? Um, (laughs) Charles Comiskey? Oh, right. Yeah. Wrong scandal. (laughs) I'm like, wait. Wrong scandal. Sorry. (laughs) Wrong scandal, but still a scandal nonetheless. Indeed. So in 1919, when baseball was truly called and was America's pastime. Yep. It was almost unthinkable. Players throwing the World Series. And yet, that's exactly what happened. Or maybe it didn't quite happen in the fall of 1919. Right. The players on Charles Comiskey's 1919 Chicago White Sox team were a 
fractious lot. Mm -hmm. The club was divided into two gangs of players, each with practically nothing to say to each other. Together, they formed the best team in baseball, perhaps one of the best teams that ever played the game. Yet they, like all ballplayers at the time, were paid a fraction of what they were worth. Because of baseball's reserve clause, any player who refused to accept a contract was prohibited from playing baseball on any other professional team. The White Sox owner paid two of his greatest stars, outfielder Joe Jackson, a.k.a. Shoeless, and third baseman Buck right. Weaver, only $6,000 a year. Comiskey's decision to save expenses by reducing the number of times uniforms were laundered gave rise to the original meaning of the black socks, quote-unquote. So Charles Comiskey was, has been labeled as the tyrant and tightwad whose penurious practices made his players especially willing to sell their baseball souls for money. But in fact, he was probably no worse than most owners of the time. In fact, Chicago had the highest team payroll in 1919. So he wasn't that much better than the rest of the teams, but it seems like he wasn't exactly out of character. So in the era of the reserve clause, gamblers could find players on lots of teams looking for extra cash. And of course, they did. So it's a story that arises at a time when the lines between gamblers and ball players had become slightly blurred. Right. Some players were big bettors, and some gamblers were former big league players. Right, so they knew how it works. Yeah. So most teams, historians believe, had at least one player on the roster willing to help tip a game for a little money. And when you're paid $6,000 a year, yeah, why won't I? <laughs> In 1963, Elliot Asinoff published a book called Eight Men Out. Right, I've heard of this book. Yeah, it's a book about the Black Sox scandal, which later became, you know, a popular movie and has more than any work shaped modern understanding of the famous scandal um, right. in the history of sports. Right. In Asinoff's telling of the history, the bitterness Sox players felt about their owner led members of the team to enter into a conspiracy that would literally forever change the game of baseball. Yeah, they became legends, but not in the way they wanted. Not in the way they wanted, exactly. So Elliot Asinoff contends that the idea of fixing the series sprang into the mind of a tough 31-year-old Sox first baseman named Charles Gandil, a.k.a. Chick Gandil. Right. Whether or not the initial idea was his or that of a gambler, it is clear no player is more closely connected to the fix than Gandil himself. Right. So Asinoff in the book, placed the beginning of the fix in Boston about three weeks before the end of the 1919 season. Okay. Gandil supposedly asked an acquaintance and professional gambler named Sport Sullivan to stop by his hotel room. Okay. After a few minutes of talk, Gandil told Sullivan, I think we can put it, the series, in the bag. He demanded $80,000 in cash for himself and whatever other players he might recruit. Talk of a possible fix began among a group that included outfielder Oscar Felsch, Happy, third baseman Buck Weaver, and Eddie Sicott, or Sicotti, C-I-C-O-T-T-E. I'm going to call him Sicott. Sicott at first 
resisted Gandalf's suggestion that he join in the fix of the series. But eventually his uh, scruples gave way because he had just bought a farm and he had a wife and several kids to support. Yeah, that money can go a long way. Yeah. Three days before the series began, he told Gandalf, I'll do it for $10,000 before the series begins. Okay. So he wants the money before it begins. Okay. So eventually Gandalf... Chick Gandal recruited even more players and a meeting of White Sox ball players, including those committed to going ahead and those just ready to listen, took place on September 21st at Gandal's room at the Ansonia Hotel in New York. It was a meeting that would eventually shatter the careers of eight players. Gandal met with Sport Sullivan the next morning to tell him the fix was on, provided that he could come up with the $80,000 for the players before the series began. Sullivan said that it might be difficult to raise that much cash so quickly, but promised to meet with Gandal when the team got back to Chicago for the final games of the regular season. Right. Then things started to get complicated. According to uh, author Asinoff, another gambler, sleepy Bill Burns, working with an associate, Billy Maharg, having heard talk of a possible fix, approached Sikot, the one with the money troubles, right. and offered to top any offer Sullivan might make. Okay. Gandal, meeting with Sakat and Burns, announced that they would work a fix with Burns and Maharg for an upfront $100,000. Burns and Maharg set off for New York to meet with the most prominent gambler sportsman in America, Arnold Big Bankroll Rothstein. Oh, man. So... In Asinoff's account, Burns and Maharg approached Arnold Rothstein as he watched horses at Jamaica Racetrack. Okay. Arnold told the two men that he was busy and that they should wait in the track restaurant where he might get to them later. Instead, Arnold dispatched his right-hand man, Abe Attell, to meet with Burns and Maharg and find out what they had in mind. When Abe Attell reported back that night about the plan to fix the series, Arnold was skeptical. Okay. He didn't think it could work. Attell relayed the news to a disappointed Burns. Undeterred, Burns and Maharg cornered Arnold later that night in the lobby of the Astor Hotel in Times Square and pressed their plan to fix the series. Arnold told the two men, quote, for whatever my opinion is worth, forget it. And Burns and Maharg did for a little while. A little bit. Asinoff's very detailed story of the meeting with Arnold is not confirmed by other sources, though, and quote, AR's role in the fix remains something of a mystery. So I will get into Asinoff's version of the story in a second. But according to Leo Katcher, the other historian, author of The Big Bankroll, concluded that Arnold declined the offer to participate in fixing the series, deeming the enterprise too risky, too many players and too many people watching. Agreed. Leo Catcher's conclusion seems to have been shared by American League President Ban Johnson, who initially believed the fix's trail led to Arnold, but later, after Arnold testified in a 1920 uh, grand jury, deemed him innocent. Okay. On the other hand, historian Harold Seymour contended that affidavits found in Arnold's files after his death showed he paid out $80,000 for the World Series fix. So regardless of whether or not he funded the fix, many gamblers and players at the time believed that he was behind it. That probably can't be good. A telegram supposedly from Arnold, but actually fraudulently prepared by lower-level gamblers, seemed to show Arnold backed the fix. 
So with Arnold's influence and nearly unlimited financial resources, players more willingly jumped on board. The gamblers, lawyers, and connections seemed to ensure no one would be punished. Arnold may or may not have been a backer of the fix, but he clearly knew about it and made a substantial amount of money betting on the series games. Estimates range up to $400,000. Now, in Asinoff's telling of the story, Abe Attell, or the little champ, as the ex-prize fighter was called, right. saw an opportunity to make some big bucks, and he decided to take it. Attell and former ball player Hal Chase contacted Burns and told him that Arnold had reconsidered their position and had now agreed to put up the $100,000 to fund the fix. Okay. Burns whirled into motion, calling Sikat and wiring Maharg to tell them the fix was on. Sport Sullivan, meanwhile, continued independently to pursue his own fix plans. Oh, boy. And he also contacted Arnold. Sullivan, unlike Burns and Maharg, was actually known and respected by Arnold. So when Sullivan laid out his plans for the fix, according to Asinoff, of course, this is all according to Asinoff's retelling, Arnold expressed an interest in the scheme he had previously withheld. Right. Arnold apparently saw the widespread talk of a fix as a blessing, not a problem. Quote, (laughs) you're going to love this quote. If nine guys go to bed with a girl, she'll have a tough time proving the tenth is the father. He decided to send a part. Yep, uh, yeah, he said that. <laughs> he decided to send a partner of his, Nat Evans, to Chicago mm-hmm. with Sullivan to meet with the players. So, in Asinoff's account, on September 29th, the day before the Sox were to leave for Cincinnati to begin the series, Sullivan and Evans, who was introduced as Brown to the players, right. met with them. Okay. Evans listened to the players' demand for $80,000 in advance and then told them he would talk with his associates and get back to them. When Evans reported back, Arnold agreed to give him $40,000 to pass on to Sullivan, who would presumably distribute the cash to the players. The other $40,000, Arnold said, would be held in a safe in Chicago to be paid to the players if the series went as planned. Arnold then got busy, quickly laying bets on the Reds to win the series. So at least two syndicates and half a dozen gamblers have been linked to the fix. But both numbers are probably underestimates. There may have been five or six syndicates and perhaps 20 or more gamblers involved. Some sources have the players selling out in St. Louis, Detroit, Boston, and Kansas City, as well as Chicago. A. Battelle told sports reporter Joe Williams of the Cleveland News, quote, They not only sold it, but they sold it wherever they could get a buck. They peddled it around like a sack of popcorn. The true extent of the 1919 series fix will probably never really be known. Right. So on October 1st, 1919, opening day was sunny and warm. The game was a sellout. The scalpers getting the unheard of price of $50 a ticket. At the Ansonia Hotel in New York, Arnold Rothstein strode into the lobby just before the scheduled opening pitch. For Arnold and several hundred other persons gathered in the lobby, a reporter would read telegraphed play-by-play accounts of the game, no TVs, right? As baseball figures would be moved around a large diamond-shaped chart on the wall. The gamblers had sent word that Eddie Sicott was either to walk or hit the first Reds batter as a sign that the fix was on. The first pitch to lead off batter Maurice Rath was a called strike. 
Sakat's wild second pitch hit Rath in the back, and Arnold Rothstein walked out of the Ansonia into the New York rain. Exposure of the series fix finally came from an unexpected source, just, at the, just as the Sox were in a close fight for the 1920 American League pennant. Okay. Reports on another fix, this one involving a Clubs-Phillies game on August 31st, led to the convening of the grand jury of Cook County. Okay. Assistant State Attorney Hartley Replogle sent out dozens of subpoenas to baseball personalities. Okay. One of those called to testify was New York Giants pitcher Rube Benton. Or Rube, I'm going to say R-U-B-E. I'm going to, I don't no, know. No, it's fine. Rube. Rube. I'm going to yeah, go with that's, Rube. That's good. Benton told the grand jury that he saw a telegram sent in late September to a Giants teammate from Sleepy Burns stating that the Sox would lose the 1919 series. He also revealed that he later learned that Gandal, Felsch, Williams, and Sakat were among those in on the fix. A couple of days later, the Philadelphia North American ran an interview with gambler Billy Maharg, providing that the public for the first time with many of the shocking details of the scandal. Sakat regretted his participation in the fix. When the scandal was uncovered, Arnold Rothstein fiercely denied any involvement to a grand jury and escaped indictment. In private, however, he never denied his role, preferring to enjoy the outlaw image. Now, Arnold Rothstein had such a formidable presence in the criminal underworld that he was reportedly once paid half a million dollars to mediate a gang war. As Arnold's fortune grew to an estimated $50 million, he became a high-level loan shark, liberally padding the pockets of police and judges to evade the law. He is fabled to have carried around $200,000 in pocket money at all times. <laughs> Drew is shaking his head. Nope. Not even. How do you carry that much money as pocket money? I don't even carry 20 bucks as pocket money. <laughs> I, I, I always carry like a 20 in my pocket, and that's my emergency 20, like mm -hmm. in case you need to... You know, you need to get something or, you know, you have an unexpected expense or your, yeah. your Metro card runs out. I'm like, okay, bam, 20, boom. 20, yeah, exactly. Shablamps. No, he carried 200000 as pocket money. Because, you know, you never know when you're in a pinch and you need to buy out a judge. Arnold's luck, though, finally ran out in 1928 when he encountered an unprecedented losing streak. At a poker game in September, Arnold lost a cool $320,000 and then refused to pay on the grounds that the game had been rigged. Jeez. Two months later, his gambling buddy George McManus invited Arnold to play what would be his final poker game. On the evening of November 4th, 1928, Arnold was shot at a high-stakes poker game at the Park Central Hotel in New York City. Hotel employees saw him stumbling and bleeding badly at the hotel service door before collapsing. Oh, An ambulance rushed him to the polyclinic hospital where surgeons struggled to remove the slug and perform a, a blood transfusion. New York police detective Patrick Floyd, a familiar face to Arnold, tried to glean some information. The quote is so funny because it's like back in the day, who shot ya, AR? <laughs> Detective Floyd asked, and Arnold Rothstein, true to his form, refused to name his assailant, replying, you know me better than that, Patty. Damn. 
The bullet had penetrated Arnold's belly, later traced to a 38 caliber revolver found on the street below the hotel. It took a downward trajectory and settled deep into the bladder. The wound was painful and caused heavy internal bleeding. The deep location of the projectile in the body made extraction futile. He's going to die. Futile. Arnold Rothstein died two days later on November 6th, but not before groggily signing a revised will presented to him during a chaotic parade of visitors. His lawyer, Maurice Cantor, reportedly guided Arnold's hand to scrawl an X on the document. The will, adjusted from another will Arnold had signed in that March, allotted money to his assistant, Sidney Stager, Stager, S-T-A-J-E-R, and Arnold's mistress, former Ziegfeld Follies dancer, Inez Norton. Oh, very nice. I'm so glad you went first. <laughs> yeah, that's that's amazing a coincidence. <laughs> nice connection there. So it also gave lawyer Maurice Cantor 5% of the estate. Now, the new will cut the share bequeathed to Arnold's wife, Carolyn, from one half in March to one third, while Oof. increasing the dancer Inez Norton's share to one sixth. The changes led to a brief legal challenge by Carolyn Rothstein, who contested the second will before finally settling the dispute. Right. At the time of his death, Arnold's estate was allegedly worth from anywhere from $1 million to $3 million. Jeez. Now, based on inflation, right. in today's money, that would be anywhere between $14 million to $42 million. He did well for himself. Nice. Nice. No okay. wonder his wife was a little bit upset. Yeah, I, I, that was my estate, and I was only getting, like, I don't know. A third? A third of that. And I'm your wife? Yeah. But, <laughs> Dad, that's... Who, who does hussy? Yeah, this side hoe was getting more... Than, I was like, okay. Just what happened in the last few hours of Arnold's life, and why New York law enforcement waited three weeks to conduct a thorough investigation after many of Arnold's paper records had been robbed proved to be among many questions following his death and long after the murder trial ended. Okay. The still unresolved mystery was largely the result of epic fails by police and prosecutors who may have been covering up to save prominent people from embarrassment. Or they could have been people who mm-hmm. were hurt by the this, the White Sox scandal and was like, <laughs> no, that was on him. He gonna die. <laughs> I ain't Russian. Thomas, the bottom of the paperwork. Thomas Rice, a member of the New York State Crime Commission, wrote a scathing critique okay. extending across the entire front page of the Brooklyn Eagle newspaper on March 31st, 1929. Okay. okay. So of the handling of the Arnold Rothstein murder probe by police and New York District Attorney Job H. Banton. So D.A. Banton charged Arnold's gambling friend, George McManus, with the murder. Arnold was said to have told a witness that McManus had called and summoned Arnold to the Park Central Hotel, where McManus was checked into room 349. Now, D.A. Banton claimed McManus gunned Arnold down there. At first, police promoted a pet theory on the motive— that a game of stud poker on September 8th, Arnold lost $200,000 and McManus $51,000 to other high-stakes gamblers. But um, they're saying that Arnold put the loss on his tab then refused to pay the gamblers, believing he was cheated. But police would abandon the poker debt idea. And without much evidence, D.A. Banton charged McManus based in part on finding McManus's coat in room 349. 
However, Thomas Rice observed that D.A. Banton had subsequently admitted that he had no evidence Arnold even visited the hotel room. Arnold was found mortally wounded at the Park Central's service entrance and may have been shot on the street, Rice wrote. Wow. The shoddy police work resulted in the loss of perhaps of hundreds of pages of Arnold's personal papers, documents that may have gone missing because they would have exposed Arnold's associations with various political uh, politicians, judges, bankers, film stars, etc. etc. Rice quoted William A. Hyman, <laughs> attorney for the Arnold Rothstein Ooh. estate, I know, I'm a child. You are. I'm in the gutter. Go for it. Who told reporters on 1928, when Rothstein's safe deposit boxes were opened, there are opened, there will be a lot of suicides. Go put that in your papers. Wow. Arnold Rothstein's influence remained strong even after his death. Before Prohibition, he famously served as mentor to teenage youths and future big-time hoods, Frank Costello, Mayor Lansky, and Charles Lucky Luciano. His close associates included a who's who of top 1920s New York era mobsters such as Luis Buchalter, Buchalter, Lepke, Dutch Schultz, Phil Castell, right. Waxy Gordon, and Longy Zwillman. But Arnold Rothstein was not a mob boss, nor necessarily even a mobster. Rather, he was a man who bestowed large loans to the criminal underworld and kept up-and-coming gangsters, as well as politicians and police officers, on his payroll. Great. His death essentially became the catalyst for a two-tiered investigation. For New York police, it was a murder mystery. The other investigation pointed to a drug trafficking based on hints that Arnold pulled the strings of an international narcotics ring. Wow. Some government officials, notably Sarah Graham Mulhall, deputy commissioner of the New York State Department of Narcotic Drug Control. That's a, that's a name. That's a full thing had been keeping tabs on Arnold's history of bailing out gangsters, particularly known dope dealers. I see. The inquiries would prove to be anything but cut and dried on either front. Arnold knew things, knew people in high places, had investments in both the light and dark corners of business, and he kept printed records. But... Most of the documented evidence investigators thought they'd find in those safes never materialized. Arnold's known endeavors, such as gambling, real estate, and bootlegging, barely scratched the surface of what he was really up to for more than a decade. Mm -hmm. As the zealots of law and order would quickly find out, his secrets were not easily cracked. Not even when his former minions faced the choice of squealing or years in a dank prison cell. More than a few so-called upstanding citizens began shuddering at the thought of their names coming to light when Arnold's safes and safe deposit boxes were opened. But there was nothing to worry about because there was nothing there. Oh. Although suspects and material witnesses were swiftly picked up for questioning, Nikki Arnstein, James Meehan, George McManus, Titanic Thompson, etc., most were less than forthcoming and others were deemed hostile, such as Arnold's closest confidant, the drug trafficking, heroin addicted, and camera shy, Sidney Stadger, hey. who warned inquiring reporters to get the hell out of here. Ideas of why Arnold was whacked ran wildly across the spectrum from his gambling debt to the suggestions that he took his own life. 
Another mystery is just what Arnold's files stored at various locations around the city contained. Who stole them and why? Right. Just one day after Arnold succumbed to his mortal wound, officers happened upon a couple of shady characters rifling through papers at Arnold's main office. Mm. Technically, the cops didn't have anything to hold the men on, and alas, off into the darkness they went. Who were these intruders, and what were they looking for? Arnold had employed both men, but not in a career anyone would list on a resume. Great. Authorities identified them as George Uffner and Charles Luciano, years before his notoriety as Lucky. Right. The former carried a reputation of gambler, dope peddler, and pal of Arnold. The latter, while lesser known at the time, had a rap sheet that included gun possession, narcotics, and an association with another recognized Arnold enforcer, Jack Diamond, legs. Yep. Conspiracy theories filled the air. Uffner, Luciano, and another former Arnold bodyguard, Thomas Walsh, Fatty, were eventually picked up for questioning, but the trio's adamant denials and of any knowledge of the Arnold murder or gang affiliations provided police with nothing useful. Quote, Arnold never was the associate of gangsters, Uffner insisted. Nevertheless, agents investigating the rec- the narcotics angle did manage to track down some suspected incoming dope shipments linked to Arnold that December following his death. One government official proclaimed that it was the biggest drug ring in the United States. The arrest of 53-year-old Joseph Unger and the seizure of $2 million in hard drugs could have been the missing link to both the murder mystery and the alleged drug cartel. Uh-huh. Neither fully panned out. And as Unger told police, he'd boil in oil before giving up information. The result of both the murder and narcotics cases left more questions than answers. Prosecutors couldn't convict the primary murder suspect, McManus. Most of the testimony from the witnesses was hazy at best. The trial of suspect Hump McManus led to an acquittal. And to this day, the Arnold Rothstein murder remains unsolved. I'd like to thank the mobmuseum.org, Christian Cipollini, history.com, the Jewish Virtual Library.org, the American Jewish Historical Society, famoustrials.com, UMKC School of Law, Professor Douglas O. Linder, Encyclopedia Britannica. And I'd like to include a famous quote attributed to Arnold Rothstein. Okay. Look out for number one. If you don't, no one else will. Boom. I will say, Danny, that was really very well detailed. Like, like honestly, I was impressed. That was a lot of research. I love this follow-up. story. I, mean, I couldn't stop writing. Yeah, because again, <laughs> and, and yeah, I mean, I can see what you're saying. Like, it is a long story, but I mean, geez, God, I can't even say that it's not my history. <laughs> but you know, like, it was. It's just crazy because I I had no idea who this person is. Now it's kind of like when you see it, then suddenly it's like that part of fills in because yeah. suddenly you see the others. Yeah, because you knew Lucky and then you're like, I knew, oh, I knew I that's I, who I, trained anyone, Lucky. Yeah, anyone who knows who not Lucky, Dutch Schultz was, all of them, you know, these are people who shape the public consciousness of what gangsters are. Yes. You know, you know, and then again you you don't ever really think because I think it's so easy to think of evil or what uh, we associate as evil that you're born like that. I was like, no, it's not as simple. Yeah, sometimes you, it's your brain is just you just come out different mm-hmm. in a certain regard, and you are wired. And you reason way. certain things. Yeah, you reason certain things, but sometimes you are made. Mm-hmm. You are crafted to become evil. Someone 
molds you. Mm-hmm. You have some, you know, a mentor. Mm-hmm. This was his mentor. And yeah, like it, it's, I feel like the way you described it, it was more like Rothstein taught Lucky how to be a wolf in a sheep's clothing. Mm-hmm. Look elegant, sophisticated, nobody will ask questions. Exactly. Yeah, so it was just, wow. I mean, again, for me, I, there really wasn't much to say because it was just such serious matter. And then on top of it, to see... Like there's this whole thing. Was he or wasn't he involved in this huge scandal mm-hmm. which changed the fabric of baseball forever? I mean, again, Literally. it's like you said, those eight men, I don't really think they realized what they were doing would have such an effect on their sport, not just their lives. Because everyone was in on it and no one thought they would go down for it. Everyone thought they were protected because of the who's who that was involved. Well, arrogance but- always works like that. You always think... And everyone was gambling. Every baseball player was a gambler because that's how they made their extra money at the time. Well, yeah, because so they're like, because, I'm not going to go down for this. Because a lot of them, yeah, they had, yeah, they're being paid for baseball. Probably didn't. It's probably the equivalent of what we deal with. Like you can't survive on thirteen an hour, you know. Well, like, it's like nine fifty. It, it's up thirteen, but it yeah, was like nine fifty you know an hour. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody can survive on that, so you got to make that extra money. And sometimes, especially with these guys who had, like you said, big families. Mm-hmm. You make it however you can because your yep. kids got to get shoes, you know. So that was you. So I that guess... was my story of Arnold Rothstein and back to Drew. Yeah, girl. <laughs> All right. So and of course the 1919 World Series, the Black Sox scandal. So that was two in one. Two in one. All right. So mine is called. Uh, I titled it "The Last Bow at Lyric Theater." This isn't just something that was. This is an event. That happened at the theater that was witnessed by hundreds, if not thousands of people. So on December 21st, 1909, the Lyric Theater, which is on 43rd Street, which I believe currently is showing Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Oh, yes, 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 yes. if my memory serves me, is right across the street from the New Amsterdam Theater. Mayhaps. Yeah, or at least in the same vicinity. Yes. Was once called the Hilton Theater, and it was debuting a play called City, which was the latest and last play by an author whose name was Clyde Fitch, who died of blood poisoning the previous summer at the age of 44 in France. Okay. Now, I didn't know who this person was, and I've been a fan of Broadway since I was a kid. Yeah. And and you have no idea who this person is. No. So this guy was born in Elmira, New York in 1865. William Clyde Fitch would grow to write over 60 plays, 36 of them original content, ranging from social comedies, farces, melodrama, and historical dramas. Wow. He was one of the first American playwrights to publish their plays. Wow. Yeah. So this dude is a big deal. He was a big, yeah, we don't know who he is now, back in the day. Yeah. He, his renowned works, such as Nathan Hale, The Climbers, The Girl with Green Eyes, The Woman in the Case, the city mm-hmm. and the girls were popular on both sides of the Atlantic, and even his mediocrely reviewed plays were successful. Wow. Twice he had four plays on Broadway at the same time. One time he had five running shows. Damn. This yeah. guy was a big deal. He his plays grossed an average of two hundred and fifty thousand a year, which equivalent to approximately six million dollars today. Damn. At a time when the average person was working for $1 a day. Wow. I feel like playwrights must know his name. They probably do and they don't. Yeah. So he was also known as a generous host with a very engaging personality. Fitch was was renowned as a raconteur. Is that how you say it? Raconteur? 
Raconteur? Raccoon, uh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Invitations to quote unquote quiet corner, which was his estate in Greenwich, Connecticut, were very much sought after. He was a close friend of designer Elise de Wolf, who helped him find many of the furnishings for his Connecticut mansion, his Manhattan townhouse, and other residences he had. At one point, she said, he knows more about women than most women know about themselves. Oh. About his taste for luxury and his work habits, a friend said he lives like a sultan and works like a dock laborer on an 18-hour shift. Okay. This is a man's workaholic. Now, it is also believed that he was considered a dandy mm-hmm. by his early teens. But, of course, he maintained a masculine persona because he knew that in school he would be seen as a sissy. Mm-hmm. He said is... I would rather be misunderstood than lose my independence. Ooh. Now, in fact, he seems he may have understood all that a little too well because there was correspondence at the time, points that he may have had a relationship brief with Oscar Wilde. <gasps> no. Possibly. Possibly. Rumors. Indeed. <gasps> Scandal. So he suffered attacks from appendicitis at one point, but refused his American doctor's recommendation of surgery. He said, I'm going to try specialists in Europe for this kind of thing. They said, we can affect a cure over here without time, without surgery. So he leaves for Europe in the spring of 1909 against his doctor's wishes. Mm -hmm. While he's staying at Hotel de la Haute Mer de Dieu, a Chalon de Champagne in France, Mm -hmm. Some French pays off a little. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Drew's mom. <laughs> he suffers a fatal attack. Oh, no. This is the blood poisoning. <gasps> he goes to go surgery by a local doctor instead of traveling to Paris. Oh, God. So his stubbornness, I don't know if this is being cheap or being stubborn. I think it's stubborn. He dies from blood poisoning. He's 44 years old. This man isn't even 50. Damn. His body is returned from France where to it's entombed you. for a time at Swan Calendar Mausoleum. That's in Woodlawn. Cemetery in De Bronx. Oh, De Bronx. Uh, funny enough, that cemetery, which was actually owned by a friend of his. Oh. So that's who he was. Right. By the time this play is going on, he's gone. Right. He's been gone, I think, about a almost a season. Okay. Because he passed away 1909. Yeah. So, so this is this is we're near the end of the year. Okay. So he's been dead for a couple of months. Okay. Okay. Over a thousand people fell into the show to see it opening night. Now, those who attended that specific performance had a lot to gasp about because it was actually, the play was the first time a curse word was ever (gasps) uttered on Broadway stage. That word would be goddamn. What? Scandalous. Indeed. (laughs) But that night also features, like I told you, was one of the most well-documented ghost sightings in Broadway history. As the cast was taking their final bows... Clyde Fitch joins them on stage. He walks out from the wing. He appears to take a bow center stage and then disappears <gasps> in front of everybody. Oh, no. Getting, can you imagine it, just gasps, screams. Oh, my God. There was even fainting in the audience. Oh, my God. To this day, they still can't explain it. Wow. Everyone saw it. Everyone saw it. Apparently, everybody saw it. Most people probably would have said, no, I was, it was just, you know, long show. You know, I was drinking, all this stuff. It doesn't matter. Thousands of people, one sighting. And that was it. There haven't been, to my knowledge, there haven't been any other sightings, but that 
one incident is one of the most famous and well-documented <gasps> paranormal appearances ever. Wow. And to be quite honest, what a what a way to go. What a way. Oh, my God. It's amazing. Indeed. So I, I felt when I really found that during my research, I was like, this is a perfect. Like, it was either that or it was going to be a mini episode. But This is a perfect way to end yeah. episode 10. Yeah. Oh, my God. Indeed. I so, love it. Is that amazing? So that's episode 10, everybody. This is us taking a bow, bow for now. <laughs> Goddamn. <laughs> Can't believe that's the first word ever. Is that amazing? So again, thank you to uh, Wikipedia for the assist with some of the more interesting elements of the research. Thank you also to ny1.com for uh, filling me in a little bit more on the whole lyric theater thing. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Here's to 10 more episodes with Yay! us. So as always, at the end, if you're looking to find us, we are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Our website is strangelittleworlds.com. Our handles on Facebook and Instagram are slwpodcast.com. You can find us on Spotify. You can find us on Apple iTunes. You can also find us on Google Podcasts. Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and any other podcast listening device. And Drew, you are getting so good at the closing. One day I'm going to be able to do it all and then leave you in the dust. <laughs> oh, no. No, I won't. You, you sound so much better. <laughs> so remember to leave us a rating and maybe even a review and we'll read it out loud. She will. On the show. She'll do it. We will do it. And if you want, we can feature your spooky story. True story. A personal spooky story or an actual true crime that happened to you or someone you know. If you email us at strangelittleworldspodcast at gmail.com. True story. Well, thank you, everybody. This has been great. Uh, here's the 10 more episodes. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Drew. And Good. we take a bow. Goodbye.